online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. Welcome to Flavour Talks with Bella Zoo. I'm Robert Kirbishley. We'll be chatting to our long-standing suppliers, creative chef customers, inspiring influencers and some of the UK's leading food experts to share adventures and stories behind our favourite ingredients, giving you an insight into our world of food. Today's episode, we get Quo Vardis stalwart Jeremy Lee together with Brunswick House's Jackson Boxer, both of whom celebrate 10 years running their respective restaurants to chat about everything from starting a restaurant to training new chefs, calling in at COVID-19 and Brexit along the way. We're absolutely delighted today to welcome Jackson Boxer and Jeremy Lee. And the reason we've got Jackson and Jeremy together is is twofold. One is that they're both celebrating a decade of their restaurants. So Jeremy in Quo Vardis and, and Jackson in Brunswick House. But also there's a rumour that you're godfather and godson. Is that correct? <laughs> I, which, which way round? Not is in the it? liturgical, not in the ecclesiastical <laughs> or liturgical sense. Um I I was you know I poor Jeremy this is this is such a, a, a kind of a terrible imposition but um I <laughs> I've, I've always loved and admired Jeremy hugely and he was one of the most kind of formidable but also gracious sources wisdom inspiration guidance and forbearance when I was kind of making my first, you know, baby steps into, into kind of independent cooking and operating of kind of restaurants. And, and Jeremy was just such a beautiful source of both firm admonishment when I uh, got overexcited, but gentle encouragement when I was downcast. And, and I thought that to kind of give this role some kind of formal honoring system somewhere between the kind of reverential kind of theological implications of, 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 of the kind of, of the traditional role, but also with a kind of a suggestive kind of profound respect in a kind of, you know, almost kind of uh, Coppola, uh, you know, uh, Coppola-esque kind of respect, uh, to, to ask Jeremy um, very, very nervously one day whether he'd, he'd consider being my kind of de facto godfather. Um, and, and, you know, it's, 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 a, it's, it's a role that he's only grown more kind of formidable and wonderful and uh, generous and benevolent in um, over, the, over the years. Oh, well, my goodness. Well, and surprise and honour in equal measure. Um, and, uh, and so Neil was not, not Neil was not even uh, even considered. Uh, I don't think. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say it. No hesitancy. <laughs> There's nothing wrong no. with a bit of moral and ethical guidance. So if we can we can leave the spiritual out of it, that's that's absolutely fine. How for both of you? How has it been the last ten years? And that that is a a little tiny question for a huge amount of time. But how have you how have you found it? Got it. Uh, 10 years, a decade is a remarkable length of time. And it, in, in real terms, it actually creeps up on you quite as a, a great surprise. You know, what on earth happened and where did all the time go? Because it just seems like yesterday. Um, start, you know, finally at the stoke of midnight, you know, I nervously got these keys to this kitchen um, in this great old building in Soho. Um, and foregoing the vast expanse of glass and views over the Pool of London and the Great East End skies to go into a basement, you know, in the middle of a grungy Dean Street um, under, you know, and that has the floor span of four cockamamie London townhouses not higgledy-piggledy together. Uh, and trying to make some sense of it, because um, it was completely, it was much bigger than anything else I'd, I'd done previously. 
bolstered by dear friends, um, you know, my godson among them, um, hmm. and his entire family. Um, and I think one of the things that got me through the first few years as I tried to make sense of it all um, was this creating of an incredible team of people, because you are really only as good as your team. Um, I don't think it matters how talented you are um, and able. To wear all of the burden on your shoulders is, is will break anything and anyone. You learn that very quickly. So a fabulous team of people is, is vital. And we've been blessed by an incredible crew of cooks that come and go. Um, a lot of young ones as well, which is interesting as they go on there, as they start out. And we became very attached to this idea of bringing on young talent and folk who tentatively asked if they could get out of this impasse of they needed a job to get experience and couldn't get experience without getting a job and kitchens back then were still quite strict about this they wanted you know we're looking for a chef to party you've got to come with all the with all the the requisites required for this role and we said well actually then you've got to start unraveling what they've learned elsewhere which is not great because you don't want to diminish anyone's been before but you do need them to cook in your style and you know the style that we wanted Corvallis to become which was you know a British restaurant within um, the skeleton of this great old Italian that had a phenomenal history that's stood just shy of a hundred years so there was a lot of um, a lot of stitching to make the tapestry work <laughs> uh, it was quite intriguing um, and we were then blessed by working with Julian Roberts, who designed these incredible menus with making sense of all my mad sketches and doodles. <laughs> um, and then John Broadley, who then in, in captured them in the most extraordinary illustrations. And so we started with this remarkable vision um, that very soon got realised, which is um, rather in- extraordinary. And 10 years can suddenly fly by very quickly. It's remarkable. Once you're, once you're lashed to the mast, that's it. Off you go. One of the kind of magnificent things about this job is that, you know, <clears throat> the very nature of, of having your whole life dictated by the demands of service, at kind of very, very, um, you know, prefigured times mean that there's there's just kind of such a kind of deep natural rhythm which structures your life, that time flows in this kind of very... Uh, serene manner, even as everything around it is increasingly chaotic and pressurized and stressful, that the kind of the fact that at 12 noon, whatever is going on, the first ticket is going to come through and, and, and you know, you're going to have to be ready for it is kind of one of the great anxieties, but also great reassurances of the job. And I think that, you know, it does create this kind of natural ordering of time, which allows it to pass kind of with 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 kind of in this kind of quite fluid manner. But I, I also think that you realize how much you have actually changed and how much the kind of the tides of um, kind of events have impacted the initial vision. And I, I have to say, I mean, I was a, having, having had a very, very intense couple of years trying to just keep the kitchens going between Orissa and Brunswick House and having no time to visit anywhere else. I had my first uh, trip to Quo Vadis last week and the place was absolutely heaving at the beginning of January, but utterly serene at the same time. And, and, and you know, I remember the very early days of Jeremy at Quo Vadis and how incredibly exciting it was and how it felt so much like Soho finally had its, its kind of its flagship that, you know, its institution that it had been missing. 
but you know, in a way, Soho has changed so much, and and Quo Vadis has also had to change with it. It still feels, however, to be there that that you know what Jeremy envisioned and what he created with you know Sam, uh, James, Eddie, uh, of course, you yeah. know, is is uh, you know does this kind of extraordinary thing of being utterly timeless and utterly of the moment. Um, and I think that's the kind of signal achievement of, of Quo Vadis and Jeremy's time there, that, that he has distilled into it a sense of the Soho we all want Soho to be, um, while also keeping it completely ahead and out of step with all of the worst changes that are actually affecting Soho. And it kind of, it, it manages to be both kind of extraordinarily progressive and exciting vision of what the future could be, while also being a kind of uh, a remarkably reassuring sense of, uh, you know, having this kind of reassuring sense of continuity with what we want Soho to remain. So when, you, when you're setting up a restaurant, I mean, even so, you've come from very different, different, very different perspectives. Jeremy, you had 18 years of experience in, um, in, in, in one place, and, and Jackson, that was Brunswick, I think, was, your, was it your first restaurant? Yeah, it was the first, yeah. first thing I did of my own, although I'd, I'd worked in and around restaurants for a few years. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's I, I, yeah, I had no idea what I was doing. I still don't really. And I think actually, well, no, no, can... but I, I think you do. You know, you did a remarkable thing, Jackson. Because Brunswick, you know, the, the hilarious thing is, you know, is is all the all the great, um, you know, similarities that Jackson has. You know, I mean, Brunswick House is like up in that film. You know, there's this beautiful <laughs> old house, this marvelous, great place, and it's mirac and it's miraculous. It remains and has survived this because it is surrounded by new builds of all kinds. I mean, it's even got the well, it's, its neighbour is the American Embassy. For yeah, States. I think our neighbours think we're market. more like the house in the Adams family, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> even our Morticia. <laughs> so, I mean, you, re you really couldn't make it out. <laughs> yeah, and I think it is, and it's and it signals um, when Jackson took over. And what what's brilliant is is, is watching the story unravel. As originally, it started as just this very very simple cafe at the front of this remarkable hinterland of astonishing rooms, crammed full of of amazing artifacts. And it's like an archaeological dig, you know. When you know when Marvin <laughs> looked into Tutankhamun's tomb and just said, "Do you see anything?" Oh, yeah, wonderful things. Well, you know, I'm honestly. <laughs> It's just a wash <laughs> and wonderful food. And it was brilliant to see it grow slow but sure but steady and weather the storms of change and, you know, and, and the speed with which the London restaurant scene moves. Um, it's, you know, you really are lashed to the mass sometimes. And Jackson did it with, and does it with astonishing aplomb consistently. This is the thing, is, is that both of you seem to have, um, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, you seem to have a kind of build it and they will come attitude rather than chasing the zeitgeist, that you're not, you're not looking for, oh, what's, you know, which trend is missing, what's coming through? It's just like, no, we, we, this is what I want to do and I'm going to do it and, and be damned if nobody comes. I mean, is, is, is that fair to say? I, I think that that was the kind of greatest thing I ever took from, from I mean, you know, I've taken, I've dragged many uh, amazing kind of pearls of wisdom out of Jeremy over the years. But I think the reason that Jeremy remains such kind of uh, a formidable uh, lodestar for me, um, and I would say that in this, you know, he shares this with, with probably with Fergus and, and Margot, is that, um, you know, that these were cooks who I really looked up to, who cooked just the most revelatory food that, you know, tasted unlike anything else I'd eaten, but also 
looked, you know, presented itself with just the most kind of insouciant self-confidence of just looking like exactly what it is um, with without any kind of, you know, with a huge amount of kind of organic beauty, but without any kind of compromise for the the kind of restricted and prissified expectations of dining at that time, which was still kind of laboring under a kind of, you know, the strictures of a certain approach, a certain pedantic approach to fine dining. Um, and, and, you know, to see cooks cooking with just supreme confidence in themselves and their product and the flavor um, was, you know, made a, kind of a really deep and lasting impression on me as a teenager and has remained with me. And I, I think that is absolutely right. You know, vis trends, both culinary and aesthetic, uh, are constantly coming and going. Uh, constantly evolving and changing. If you set yourself up to attempt to follow them or second guess them in a bid to staying relevant, you will you're kind of damned to to kind of to failure because it's impossible and in harder than it ever was. In a city of 10 million people, if if you know if you have a singular vision for what you think is good and what you think is right and what you think is delicious and real and if you pursue that vision with you know a reasonable amount of kind of uh, you know fortitude you will find that there's a couple of hundred people on any you know at, at any for any lunch or dinner in a city of 10 million people who who share that and i think that that is yes. That is still true and that remains true and is perhaps more true than ever that, you know, London is more food literate than it ever was. People see eating out as as kind of an intrinsic part of the urban kind of experience in a way that was, it, you know, it's much less of a bourgeois pastime than it was when I was first working in restaurants. It's now considered something that, you know, restaurants are as much for young people as they are for... for oh, hugely, I think. I think this is a very important thing because, and also one of the things I think that was very important, particularly for the generation I came up in, um, that, you know, beautifully seems to filter down, was that coming from homes where food was just a, a daily part of civilised life, it was just the norm, parents wildly enthusiastic about cooking and ingredients and finding them, and then bringing their kids up in this environment where it was second nature. And I've been very blessed in all the kitchens I've worked in um, well, with chefs of a similar yen. And that's filtered down then into the next generation because we, we, there was a zeitgeist, I think, you know, because it was very peculiar for, you know, privately educated middle class kids, you know, from what might laughingly be called privilege, to go into this, um, this madcap realm that has it's one of the few disciplines in this country that is so poorly served by education and so a lot of it is learned on the hoof um and we had to make sense of it constantly and you know so you know when i work with terence conran and you know what a mentor and then simon in the kitchen i mean incredible minds and then when i came to work with sam eddie and james and crispin and all the gang it made you know, they likewise all came from homes where food was to the fore. And, you know, I mean, almost obsessively. I mean, ridiculously in some instances, <laughs> you know, and ingredients were key. And there is, and there is that, you know, Anna Winter put it very well in one of those funny um, interviews um, that you, you pick up on now and again. And she said, you've always got to look for, as soon as you hesitate and look left or right and what other people are doing, um, you kind of falter and stumble. Um, and one of the, 
great things in London is that no longer is there is this one discipline for all mentality, um, but it embraces everything. And thank goodness we all do different things. Otherwise, it would be pretty rum-do, really. Yeah, I think that's yeah. absolutely right. I think the moment you start trying to second guess what your audience wants, you're also reversing to uh, an a-hospitable model. And, I, you know, Jeremy touched on it earlier, but, you know, the older I get, the more, you know, I still love cooking and I still spend as much time as possible in my kitchens. But the other part of my job is is kind of, you know, setting the kind of direction and, uh, you know, mm. and the whole kind of ethos of, of the places. And I find that, you know, if you inculcate uh, a kind of an attitude in your staff where you're always trying to second guess what people want it creates terrible insecurity whereas if yes. you kind of stick if you if you can kind of coalesce a vision of what good food and good hospitality is and give your team supreme confidence that what we do is our way of doing things and it is beautiful and right and unique to us and on its day it's as good as anything you'll get anywhere else and that we you know we should celebrate ourselves for achieving this that that especially for cooks who um, put up with a huge amount of anxiety and pressure anyway, the fact that they that can then have total belief in the kind of quality of what they're doing. And then the front of house team who can feel enormous, you know, pride and belief in what the kitchen are producing and, and, and approach hospitality from this kind of, rather than being a kind of a transactional, you pay the money and you get the product, taking it to a kind of what I believe is a truly hospitable model where it's like, we built this house, we put everything in it, and now we're going to open the doors and anyone can walk in and enjoy the fruits of that. And it won't necessarily be for everyone, but there is something here for anyone. And I, I kind of, I feel that kind of much more democratic approach to to building restaurants um, is is really the kind of when I walk in somewhere and the team are happy and smiling and proud of what they're doing. Yeah, I don't really care yeah. if it's a very you know it could be a humble you know it could be a little gastro pub it could be a little it could be a cafe you know but you walk in and and the team are clearly happy to be there you know the bacon and eggs will be delicious to me and I can go into yeah. for a very refined expensive dining experience which is neurotic about their desire to either acquire more stars or hold on to the ones they've got and everyone there is just absolutely terrified of of slipping from a, a, a standard at which they have no objective control and is in, entirely based on the subjective whims of anonymous uh, judges and the neurosis of that of that food and cooking and service just you know, it, it, it doesn't matter how much care and labor has gone into it. It's fundamentally less enjoyable to me. And, and you know, that is something I really feel as I get older is that, you know, we exist not just to cook good food. We exist to restore people's, you know, kind of joie de vivre, their, their kind of pleasure in being alive, you know? Yes, you're so right, Jackson. And it's also a thing, it's, it's just the jeans and tiaras thing that Terence used to say. You know, you should, you, you should, you know, it shouldn't be dressed up to sit down and sit at an apricot tablecloth made of terraline that's going to rustle in static electricity your way through dinner in a harsh temple. I mean, blessedly, those days are very, very far behind us. I mean, you know, it's even hard to remember or even wonder what on earth we were doing back then. But the mm. fact that it now became, that eating out is, is a pleasure. And I'm a firm believer that it really, that it, the, the success of restaurants is based in a large part to the success of cooking and eating at home as well. So you understand the process, you know, because I think there was a time and certainly a mentality when I was starting out of like, oh, no, I don't want that. I could get that at home. You know, when people wouldn't even order, order, yeah. order water, 
going, oh, do I can turn on a tapper? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's incredible. You know, and we've now moved on from that dramatically. And you know, the order of day is, do you want tap, fizzy or still? You know, it's, you know, it's just common language now. But mm. it's Incredibly glamorous offering. It sounds to me like both of you are, are in, in, a, in a way, are, are, rather than creating a restaurant, you're, you're creating an extension of your homes. And particularly, I think, um, given sort of looking into, in, into um, both of you have cited uh, your um, cooking at home when you were young as being a big influence. That you're you're just you're you're kind of recreating that. It's, it's, you know, instead of having form over content, it's it's really much about creating that atmosphere. It's in, in the same way that when pubs went from being landlords uh, to managers, you lost a lot of that idea that a, a landlord that's his home that he invites you into, and and the landlord creates the atmosphere. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, you know, people I often get asked, obviously, you know, I had two formidable grandmothers, one of whom was a famous food writer, the other was an incredible kind of country uh, farmhouse cook, um, both of whom, you know, made a great impression on me. But, you know, actually, in real terms, the greatest influence on me has always been my mother, who is, you know, just a, a superhuman force of energy, warmth and hospitality and always was for my childhood in a way that I didn't appreciate at all until I kind of left home and realized what an absence, the kind of the constant cooking and chat and love and energy and vigor and, you know, just delight and pleasure in being alive, how unusual that was. And, you know, in a way, my, my whole approach to building restaurants is to try and, you know, distill that uh, that glorious sense of kind of the, the the moment that my mother is so adept at creating just almost mm. as an extension of herself in everything she does. And, and you know, I think that, you know, while my home life uh, is nothing like the home life I grew up with, because I spend so much time at work and because my work is so demanding and intensely social, I actually, you know, I have three small children, but we tend to live quite kind of frugally and monastically at home and 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 you know we we live a very kind of because i need i have quite a kind of simple quiet home life as a way to kind of balance the kind of rather draining effects of being in a restaurant the rest of my time yeah. but you know the restaurants actually are much more like the home i grew up in which was kind of constantly full <laughs> of, of people and just the kind of relentless kind of enthusiasm for life with which my both my parents but especially my mother bought kind of everything um it, it you know has made this kind of huge lasting impression on me and i think I know from speaking to Jeremy that, you know, there's a kind of a huge element that both of our childhoods and both of our parents' approach to things have been quite kind of similar in that regard. Oh, hugely, and continue to be. Um, and there's that remarkable thing as, as, as you continue through this great adventure, you know, and it's, you know, you're constantly concluding one chapter and starting another. And you might even have a couple of chapters going simultaneously, even a couple of books going simultaneously um, as this thing. And I think one of the things is remaining engaged and delighting in what we do, because I think that's very important. Because one of the things I think you can see is when restaurants calcify. or when any, It's very easy for somebody to suddenly stop still and, you know, and just, you know, awful things like self-doubt come in and you're like, what on earth is going on now? And, you know, what being wary of that 
constantly so that the menu is always bright and alive and the offering always good and the, the produce always good. You know, there's an yeah. element of showbiz. It doesn't matter how stressful and upsetting or, or how few people have turned up for work that day or how few of your deliveries have come in. You know, the show must go on and ultimately you know we must do it with as much kind of smiling and bonhomie as possible and i think like you know there is a there's a there's a kind of cliche in restaurants where restaurants often describe themselves as an environment as being like a family you know we're like a family i actually think lots of families are incredibly you know carry with them huge amounts of kind of weight and unpleasantness and toxicity and you know repressed kind of you know tortuous power dynamics and i, I think actually you know a family generally speaking, is not a good model on which to run a restaurant. And I say this as the father of a small family. I, I, I would hate to be the father of my restaurant family. I try and be a much better person in the restaurant than I am at home where I, you know, I'm, I'm you know, I, I, you know, my children who are, you know, small and need a kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, kind of clear kind of rules and guidance. I try and be much more laissez-faire at, at work. But I, I think that there is a kind of something very profound about that sense that, you know, when service, you know, we are also here to project an enormous amount of kind of confident happiness and optimism. Yeah. I think that is very important. Yes, yeah, I, I mean, think one of the great, the great gifts of food is this ability to furnish a table and then have folks sit at it. You know, the better the food, the louder the laugh, I've always felt, you know, and it does, it does sort the world out. I mean, I've often felt you could just get, um, you know, all these curious characters that could, you know, could shape our destinies, you know, sit them at table and give them a good lunch. And it might, it might very well jolly alter the shape of history, frankly. I was going to say that I also think the last two years have been very hard. And, you know, from uh, as, as, you know, I don't know how Jeremy's found it, but, you know, traditionally, whenever someone joins your kitchen, they're always, you know, they come and they do a trial and they taste the food and they're so excited to be there. And for the first few weeks, there's so much to learn and that you're, you're kind of gently encouraging them. But always after a few weeks or a couple of months, they hit a wall and, you know, they break up with their boyfriend or whatever or their girlfriend. And, and suddenly they feel very crushed and deflated and things aren't going quite as well and things aren't as exciting and new. And they realize that they're going to have to come in and do this every single day. And they hit a wall and you put your arm around their shoulder and you say, look, it's OK, look. I, I know you're having a rough time and I know it, it is suddenly hard, but look how much you've achieved since you got here. Mm. Um, in, in two months, you've mastered all these new things. Think where you'll be in six months time, stick at it and we'll look after you. And they'd always, you know, before they'd always brighten up and they say, yes, I can see that. Suddenly the last kind of couple of years during this pandemic, they, it, that hasn't worked for me anymore. And you put your arm around their shoulder and you say, look how, look how well you're doing. Think where you'll be in six months. And they just look at me like I'm a complete idiot because in six months, <laughs> who knows where we'll be. And actually the one thing that I have been able to fall back on and, and remains true is I say, look at that dining room full of people. Look how happy they are to be here. Look how happy we have made them to be alive. You may not be feeling happy right now, but what you're doing is fantastic. You know, coming in and working and cooking food that makes people happy. What else in this kind of iniquitous and unpleasant, you know, economy that we yes, live in? There, is a, you know, there, there are very few things that you can do for your labor and for your time and be well paid to do with good folk that make people happy and improve their lives. And that is a fantastic thing. 
And that will, you know, that is, I think that is so important to always remember that, that ultimately, you know, when you're doing our job right, it is the most rewarding job in the world because it exists fundamentally just to make people happy. You know, and one of the things, you know, Anna Tobias always cites this when she cooked with me years and years ago. And she was a case in point. One of the things, one of the, some of the folk, uh, my favourite folk, I've, you know, who have worked in the kitchens, were ones who wrote beautiful letters and saying, I've just graduated from university or college or whatever, or I'm, or I'm giving a change of career. Um, I think these are fascinating characters because they make such a, you know, they didn't like me fall into it by accident when there was no plan, almost, I mean, astonishingly. But folk who have made a concerted um, effort and made a decision and thought this through, that this is what they want to do, really do make formidable cooks and put so much into it. Um, and I think one of the things they like about coming to work an old dinosaur like me is knowing that, um, you know, I'm old enough to be their grandparent in some instances. It's ridiculous. Um, but, but knowing, you know, but being when you do say, look, you know, this, you know, you're going to, you will do this and you will crack it and you'll amaze yourself at what you're able to do. And I remember Anna Tobias finally coming to me with an almond tart that was absolutely perfect and beaming ear to ear with pride. And the only good thing I could say was, I look down at long bloody last, you know. <laughs> 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 you know, and, and, you know, instead of, you know, putting the, the, you know, this, you know, exactly where you wanted to be achievement and puffing it with gold medals and, and that awful thing of, awards and you know and enlarging the situation you just go well done that's exactly how it should be now go and do it again yeah and go and do it again and make sure you make it slightly better and enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when your 2000th almond tart looks like that then i'll applaud you yeah. <laughs> yeah, you have a good laugh about it you know which is you know you know you sometimes need to prick the bubble to then you know to get some to you know to reveal the packet mashing mold and then you put then you build the layers on it to make something in that's that's shattered that's absolutely right. And I think, I mean, the thing, the, you know, what people get wrong about this game is there's no, there's no room for ego in it. You know, like the cliche no, of the cliche of cooks making it all about them. That doesn't work. It never worked. It, it, you know, it can, people can flash briefly at that level, but there's no sustainability in it. You can't sustain that level of commitment to your own ego because when people get bored of it and when you become insufferable, no one will want to work for you. No one will want to eat your food. And it, you know, restaurants don't make any money anyway. You've got to make them enjoyable and you've got to make them last. So are you both adamant then that a, a, a calm, relaxed, friendly, collegiate kitchen produces better food than one where oh, everyone- Oh, of course, yes. A happy kitchen, of course, makes happy food. Um, and then add to that good produce and good equipment and a good environment. And, you know, that's half the battle. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the good um, equipment, I think we're always going to be on the back foot there, aren't we? Oh, my God. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed at kitchens I go into. And I'm like, where are the lids for the pots? And I'm like, what lids? And I'm like, how can you buy a pot without a lid? It's, you know, Oh, yeah, and everything you know, bound in elastic and, 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 and electric wires that were bound in yeah. a, a band-aid. You were like, what are you on? Yeah. You know, that just will not stand. And I think there is a mentality of just muddling through you go, no, cooks are proud, stand proud. They're yeah, not yeah. bowed and broken at their bench. You know, they do yeah. great things. And one of the, and I think the testament to that was when COVID did strike. And then I think when the, the shock 
uh, wore off that, after those first few weeks where we were all standing there in just stunned amazement at what had happened to our world. And staring down the, bar- the both barrels of a very loaded gun going, oh my God, this is actually the death knell of the restaurant business. Um, and all these suppliers that were starved out with produce and kitchens suddenly still and mothballed. Um, and this extraordinary movement of cooks are washed up on the shores of solitude at home, sitting around, right, I'm going to start cooking. That's what I can do. And the huge charity endeavours alone were breathtaking. Um, other than the businesses that suddenly, which would have taken months of planning before COVID and, you know, endless amounts of detail, suddenly overnight or turning on a sixpence for churning out food for boxes for deliveries for home. They were turning their restaurants into shops. They were selling sandwiches and pizzas, <clears throat> anything to get their cooked back in on a, you know, on a work ethic or charity thing, you know, so you remain slightly within the realms of restrictions. Um, and then being able to say, right, okay, you're a volunteer now, so you can come and cook for delivery at mine, and we'll just turn the flat into a field kitchen. Um, was incredible, and the goodwill and charming generosity of friends and family and cooks was incredible, I found. And the generosity of suppliers, Bill, as you itself, I was saying previously, <laughs> unbelievably generous. We always try, we always try. It was <laughs> astonishing, it was astonishing. I was furloughed for about five weeks, and, and I, I could, so I... So after after the first sort of day of of being a little bit you know annoyed by the fact that I wasn't felt like I wasn't needed, you just go okay. Well, I'm just I'm just gonna I'm just gonna enjoy this because I, there's nothing I can do about it. But I was I was astonished, absolutely astonished, amazed, and and heartened. I, I by the way that restaurants um, and other businesses com- did exactly as you described. They turned themselves around. They'd never consider doing uh, take-home stuff uh, before, but just purely to survive, that's what they did. And also, the other the other thing was just, well, cooking's what I do. Sorry, I'm I'm going to go and I'm going to make meals for the NHS. I mean, where I live in Watford, I, I didn't realise until after about six or seven months that that uh, Watford Football Club had been opening its doors and and feeding people. Uh, the, the hospital next door for free and and, and oh, having... there was so much of this it's incredible what work was being done it know? was beautiful i mean it really was beautiful it was it was, it was humanity at its best yes because when people started liking it to the war effort and i was going well which war did you live through you know i'm just trying to think what 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 what, what are you talking about this with this you know this, this extraordinary churchillian effort you know this is based entirely on goodwill and great spiritedness and there was nothing warlike whatsoever. And in fact, I think it will be interesting in, in, the, in the years to come, looking back at this and wonder precisely were the right things done? Because I think the carnage that COVID has, has put upon us will, you know, will, be, will, will cost us dear for a very long time yet to come. And we've not even yet seen the full impact of it. One of the things in the restaurant business that really um, was truly extraordinary was the goodwill and spiritedness that I've always loved and admired about it. You know, this camaraderie and, um, and good sport and goodwill, you know, and the generosity of people and the realisation that all our producers and suppliers that we hold so dear, because not only do we rely absolutely on a brilliant team in the kitchen, we also are vital to what to feed their, their hunger for knowledge and ability is the produce. And without good ingredients, we're stumped. So this curious business of Brexit being snuck in on the back of it really played another card that was um, totally unforeseen, you know, and snuck through under such small radar 
um, you know, at the stroke of midnight when it did, um, and was covered and shrouded by the Brexit debacle and the COVID debacle. And those, that, that price has yet to be realised, and we're seeing it already as inflation rises and the price of produce rises. And so cooks have to be crafty and clever and able. Um, and all those qualities um, that cooks need to learn, how do you fashion a menu, what do you, how do you make it pay? And so you're, you're not a busy fool um, working all the hours God sent and not making any money, which is just foolhardy. You know, and so you've got to have that, that ability of working towards the idea that you can get home at night and sleep sound and not wake up in the morning with a terrible sense of dread about what, what's coming your way. And that's a, that's a constant um, awareness exercise. And how do you work towards avoiding that hugely? And I think the COVID debacle illustrated it beautifully. And I think the spirit that sale carried us through it. Well, it's why the, there seems to be a sense of optimism for 22. He, and if Boris does raise more restrictions and allows us to get on with our lives, admitting that there is this thing in our life now, like there are so many threats, um, we just get on with it. So how has your, since the, the B word that shall not be named, uh, since, that, <laughs> since that has arrived, how has your relationship with your suppliers changed? Has it... Has it improved? Has have you seen them? Well, go? you're actually the ones we should be speaking to because yeah, yeah, I was going to say you're the, the experts. World. Um, and it's incredible the produce you bring to us. Um, and I remember when George just had a few. Your founder, George Benno, had a few bowls of olives on a table in Camden, um, side by side with Patricia at La Fromagerie selling a few cheeses. And Monica uh, Lavery at Brindisa was carrying around a basket with a tin of anchovies and a bottle of olive oil and a piece of batarga and a slice of uh, incredible pata negra. And from these, you know, incredibly visionary people grew these phenomenal businesses that are the backbone of our supply list. Um, the idea that suddenly we would be parted from this is shocking beyond belief. And the lack of consideration by a bunch of spoiled gits but we've never had to worry and strive ever, and we're taken on holiday. And think going 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 to Spain is just a matter of course. Whereas there are a great many people to whom this level of privilege is anathema. Mm. And so Brexit is an, aber an aberration and a vast part of our workforce. Mm. You know, and the amount of, I mean, it's not so much the food that's worried. We can't get drivers to deliver it. Mm. Um, and then they've got to go through the ridiculous thing of these costs to transport stuff. So it's an enormous business. Um, and yeah. I think that was a thing that shocked the, the daylights out of the government when they realised um, closing, closing hospitality, which they thought was just shutting a few pubs and a few restaurants down, actually was one of the biggest revenue strains in the country, one of the biggest mm. businesses and biggest employers. And we'll pay a terrible price for that and are paying a terrible price for it. I think that's absolutely right. I think um, this is gonna is gonna be uh, one of those. It's very hard to get a clear idea because it's such a complex and interwoven set of uh, yes. you know causes and effects, and it'll continue to pan out over a number of years. Um, I think that you know for people for people like me and Jeremy, and of course you guys at Bellatsu, you know we're slightly used to not being taken seriously or not being given the kind of preeminent 
attention that say high finance or you know more ostentatiously kind of important industries and endeavors are, are given politically but you know as as jeremy says what the pandemic showed is that you know we are in terms of the real economy not kind of the finance economy which is just paper you know digital money being shifted around uh, but in terms of real production and the links between say rural economies agriculture fishing economies you know foods and the production of food and the consumption of food is you know it's it's such a kind of fundamental of how the country actually fun functions and what people's lives are actually like and you know brexit is going to have kind of massive implications of that it is you know absolutely unarguable that the fact that i can't get purple sprouting broccoli uh in the middle of purple sprouting broccoli season because there is no one to pick it is not only just a huge kind of waste but is you know a completely you know a, a, a sign of you know the most profound policy failure on you know the, yes. the deepest level yeah. um yeah. and and you know the, the the idea that that um you know that everything will reshape itself you know it's it's just simply not the case you know it's not going to just magically contort itself into kind of figuring itself out um people will go bust you know entire farming economies will be ruined fishing economies will be ruined and they won't come back you know they they'll just be gone and these are after all you know it's like cheese you know in in you know Niels Yarda kind of along with a few other kind of visionary individuals are kind of single-handedly responsible for bringing back kind of good high-end domestic cheese production after it was all kind of ruthlessly industrialized yeah. um but these things they they we can't take them for granted they won't just happen in a vacuum they've got to be nurtured and supported no, I think, and I think this is the, 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 one of my bugbears about uh, the, the whole thing is the way that uh, farmland has been completely commoditized, and uh, d d it just it, it becomes something nice to own rather than actually to work. And and this, you know, where I live, there's there's fields and fields and fields that just they they don't do, and nobody does anything with them. Yes, I think this the the, the books that are now appearing on the subject and um, wilding is. Good. There's far, there are, I mean, it's, it's, it's just, a, you know, a vast series of estates through this country. Um, and a great, and a butt in them is farmland and huge walled gardens that don't produce anything. Um, and, the, the, you know, this, this strange mentality of a supermarket where everything is wrapped in plastic. You know, there's a Planet Organic opened up on Broadway Market. And then somebody said, oh, whoops, there goes, there goes the area then. Um, <laughs> Dr. Hell. And it's just aisles and aisles of plastic. And you just go, mm. how can this be? And this idea that you, you know, the fresh produce is almost like Christmas baubles, you know, um, you know, for sale to decorate the home rather than the, the hardcore stuff that's all prepared behind this bizarre mm. is 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 shocking. Um and you know, it's no accident that we're, we're as, as each borough and part of, of of all cities now are being reimagined and reawakened and brought back to life. You know, and in some extreme seems like like Brunswick House, you know, <laughs> you know, they're saying it is like oh we're with you know and there's the biggest fruit and veg market in the country, which is probably going to be moved because it's sitting on price price mm. you know and the more we remove our communities from the centre of towns and destroy them and we need markets and you know farmers markets are springing up now you know joyously everywhere you know and that's that, that is no accident they are needed and wanted and people mm. do care you know and this idea that we would that we you know we, and we don't want plastic near our food we don't want that 
vacuum packing, which is an anathema in itself. Mm. You know, this idea that you can have food that can sit in the fridge for months on end is, you know, what, what mentality created this? It's monstrous. Yeah, I, th- I think my favourite one ever for that was, was it was about 20 years ago and I was, I was, um, it, was it was a Sainsbury's, I think, up in, uh, up in Manor House and um, it was at the time of the Rugby World Cup and indiv- individually wrapped baked potatoes with instructions of how to make one. <laughs> which, which I just, well, so what, I mean, are there, are there, are there any positives that have come out of the, the, the COVID? Let, let's leave the B word alone. Are there any positives that you could, yeah, both of you can look at? there's one very, very clear one, which is that to try and get people who'd all left London at the start of lockdown um, to come back to London and take jobs back in the industry, wages have had to jump uh, an unprecedented amount, or probably like, mm. you know, in some cases doubling, in some cases up by 50% um, in order to get people back into kitchens. Now, one of the... And I, you know, I'm loath to, it's a difficult area to talk about, but basically over the last 10 years, we've seen rising prices of ingredients, rising rents, rising rates, and the cost of living in London going up massively so that people don't necessarily have Mm. money to spend. And the one way that restaurants could cling on and not go bust was by being quite tight in their control over pay. And it was the one thing that we di- we had control over. We couldn't control what we paid on produce. That was set by, you know, the people selling the produce. We couldn't control what we were giving the government in terms of tax and rates as VAT went up. We couldn't control what, you know, we were paying in rent because, the, you know, it was a very competitive real estate market. The one thing we could be, was in our control was how much we agreed to pay people. And this was industry-wide. But, you know, wages, although they've gone up a lot in the last 10 years, have gone up nowhere near enough to counter how expensive it is to live in London now and to counter how much it is to rent in London. In order to get people back into work, we've had to put wages up massively across the board. Everyone has. And it's a really, really good thing. And it's well overdue. Um, It is going to mean that menu prices go up sooner rather than later, especially with that about to go up again um but it is it's it's definitely and it's it's really unfortunate that it took the pandemic for us to do this but ultimately it's kind of one of those you know blessings in disguise i would say and you know the fact that everyone is now paying considerably more makes it a very compelling industry again you know suddenly you know you can get as an entry-level position you can earn really good money and you can very quickly turn that into really good money by you know a couple of years of experience in kitchens and at the front of house level as well so that is the one very very clear positive um that's come out of this so apart, I mean, apart from wages, then. So I mean, that which is that's fantastic. But how? I mean, how on earth do you replace the labour that has been lost? This is the, this is a huge thing because it's a profession that, and I don't use the word lightly because it is a profession, even though it's not recognised as one of the professions, one of the great ones. Um, and where it, where what it lacks, dramatic, shockingly, education, and because it was fueled by an amazing entrepreneurial spirit or by folk who just loved, didn't want to sit in an office and the restrictions of that enclosed environment at all. And what COVID has illustrated is nobody wants to sit in an office. Period. <laughs> you know, what an them and they you know, talk about rents rising. There are vast amounts of real estate standing empty um, at extraordinary costs, which is just to me absolutely hilarious. And one of the things that, that will bolster the restaurant business back is when restrictions are lifted and the workforce is returned. You know, there will be a balance restored. Um, um, that will help the restaurants a lot. 
fingers crossed, and that's got very much a big hope. But I think um, where we have schools, you know, the finest art schools, and you know, every kind of artistic discipline is, is has, um, has an incredible education system. Cooking is still very much in the dark ages and held back by a strange reticence. And it's, you know, this needs to change, and we need to reflect this incredibly diverse world in which we live, that we need to embrace everyone. So there is, you know, there's a vast amount of, you know, we encourage the opportunities for all, for all folk. And this is a very important thing. Now, if it's not recognised and acted on, and I know Ben Rogers is working with um, City Hall to change this, but it's a slow business. And so it's, it's, in, it's beholden in the restaurants to keep these fires going, to keep these yeah. spirits up and hopes and aspirations, and education in a business um, not known for it and its kindness and its generosity and it's a slow, slow change. And I was noticing this, you know, there's a, there's a new film out, you know, based on a chef in the East End and it's cliches galore on the subject. I haven't seen it yet, so I'm not criticising it in any way, one way or the other. But interestingly, that's not a film I'm drawn to watch. I'm far more drawn to watch a film than Popo or Babette's Feast, where there's just unbelievable charm and humour involved in this, rather than the grotesque negativities. Because, you know, frankly, you're not going to tell me that a young lawyer starting out is having a whale of a time and enjoying himself enormously, or a nurse, or anyone else in other of the great professions. It's a big uphill battle, and there's education needed to make that understood, you know, that your youth is spent, you know, just when you're a sponge for knowledge and, and experience, bolsters you against, you know, the hard work work in the long hours with the idea that someday you know that's all going to be paid back in kind yeah i think that's absolutely right i think i think you know i personally feel optimistic because i i love this job and i think it can be wonderful i think it has been very hard for the last couple of years because i think for lots of young people they've had a miserable existence where Mm. all of the things when you're young you've got so much energy you can work really hard you just really need to be able to have fun and blow off steam at the same time and the closure of all forms of entertainment and social interaction have just created an incredibly depressing scenario for young people in which they're expected to work very hard for relatively little money pay enormous amounts to their landlords um, with no hope of ever putting anything aside for themselves and to what end you know life is a joyless kind of, you know, series of, of kind of exploitative engagements where they're just having their time robbed for them for very little reward. Now that things are coming back, you know, actually restaurants are wonderful places to work because they not only uh, give you access to those good times, ultimately I'm, I'm much less worried about what makes this industry attractive for people to work in, especially when you compare it to all the other things you can do. You know, there, it, yes, it is hard work but it's incredibly rewarding work and it's certainly much less hard work than when we were younger you know there is no expectation you know i would never ask you know i I mean i would never ask anyone to work you know more than 50 hours now in a way that you know was 70 hours was considered an easy week you know uh you know when i was a commie chef it was five doubles a week every weekend i got monday and tuesday off for years and this was the norm to you sleep, know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and go to college. You know, you're like, yeah. what? You know, this, uh, you know, harking back, you go to that is full fat abuse, actually. Yeah, that's a hell of a thing to, to persuade people. To, I mean, I know they, that's not you saying that's not how it is now, but there, there, there is that lingering perception. So, I mean, that's a hell of a thing to, to instill in young people. Oh, yeah, it was, uh, it, it, was a, it was a shocking way of doing. 
And I think there are massive inroads being made to reduce this terribly. And again, you know, this thing, you know, what, what has realised as a huge part of the economy of restaurants is this fact that, you know, you need to keep staff. And keeping staff is the hardest thing, the hardest part of the job, you know, because mm. there's this remarkable thing that will always and will always be, you know, that you train someone, you know, someone to, and they're training on the job. I mean, they are, you know, it's not an apprenticeship scheme, which is what I think is very much missing from our business, you know, where they can be bolstered financially through this to learn. But when they've come, they will come to a certain, they will, they will ceiling at some stage and move on. And you're like, oh God, what, you know, having, I mean, we've worked so hard the last years, can't we keep you for another couple? And so there's, there's, an, there's a, a gray area that desperately needs addressing, that having worked so hard, how do you keep someone? You know, and there's some strange mentality that if you stay somewhere too long, you know, your life's over. And you're like, what? I mean, you're only 22. I mean, I just don't understand. Mm. <laughs> you know, and this but, is a constant thing of, you know, when somebody reaches 28, if they haven't been, if they're not showered in stars and glitter and, and glory, there's something wrong with the system. Um, when in fact, actually, the age they should just be starting out and beginning mm. to even think about where they're going to go. You know, and I think this is something that desperately needs addressing, for sure. I think it does. I think it's a societal issue. And I've said for many years, I think the one big question we can all ask ourselves is how much is enough? Just just for everything, how much is enough? Do you need to be earning this? Do you really need, if you're enjoying your life, do what... What, what is it that, that you want to achieve? I mean, I, I, again, you know, I'd, I'd agree with you absolutely that there is this. I remember growing up and having this perception that I got to 22 and I didn't know what I was doing with my life. I hadn't gone to drama school then. And, and that was it. I was on life scrap heap. And you're like, you, you're 22. But, with, but I mean, barely starting. I mean, you're just so newly hatched then, you know, and you're yeah. recovering from your childhood, you know, and all the battle scars of growing up and, you know, suddenly rocketing to, in height and and just like trying to make sense of what you are physically rather than even just mentally. And I think this is a huge thing. And what you know, and what you do with these little ducklings is that you 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 sort of you know try and marshal them into into some kind of shape and form, you know, to make sense of it. And one of the best things you can do for that is create an environment where they can thrive and grow. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, look, I, I mean, Jeremy, you've got uh, you've got things, you've got a book to be working on. Jackson, you've got to get back to work. I'm really aware that we've taken an hour of your time and it's been utterly delightful to listen to you. My, my last question to both of you would be, Jackson, what would you cook for Jeremy? And Jeremy, what would you cook for Jackson? Oh, um, okay. Uh, for Jeremy, I would cook um this is a really good question what would i cook for jeremy i would make jeremy a very simple salad of bitter leaves with toasted walnuts and a light sharp bright vinaigrette and some shaved cheese and i would serve right. that with a large chop of the best meat that I thought would be delicious, like either a really, really sexy aged uh, chop of pork loin or, and I would roast that in a pan and then I would toss in some butter and use the pan juices with a bit of wine and sherry and stock. And then I would probably just serve that with some, some uh, lightly sauteed potatoes. And it would just be I'm those- I'm on the way, by the way. And it would be really good. <laughs> 
it would be delicious and we'd really enjoy it together. That's what I do. Um, well, my, my enduring fondest memories of Jack's in the kitchen is at his mum's um, at her farm down on the Downs and firing up the oven and seeing this incredible choreography of dishes <laughs> and pans manoeuvring between, you know, an open fire oven and a stove going at full gallop. But for Jackson, I think as we, we share deep Scottish roots, and in fact, he has a song, Dundee Strain, in him as well, from his mother. Um, so I think, uh, for me, it would be a great heap of langoustine just out of the box, out of the, out of the pan onto a plate with a big bowl of aioli, or just Yum. even a great mustardy mayonnaise. And hopefully that this would happen in August when you get the first grouse. Um, with all with all the accoutrement required to um, ennoble that divine bird, and then a big bowl of raspberries. Yum. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, look, um, I, I'm I'm gonna go and dig out a, a particularly good double pork chop now. Um, and yeah. I can cook that for you, and then we can get a date in the diary for August. For that London date is so yes. So well, if, if we have a spring one with yeah. you and then you will have an autumn one with me my darling and see you soonest it's been too Heaven. long oh, it's so lovely i can't think of a, a lovelier way to start my week jackson boxer jeremy lee thank you so much and enjoy thank the rest you. of your day and the rest of your weeks thank you, you. pleasure and an honor thank you bye-bye bye-bye if you've enjoyed this podcast please feel free to leave a rating and review we'd really appreciate you taking the time to let us know what you think you can follow us on facebook instagram twitter tiktok and linkedin or go to bellazoo.com thank you very much for listening and hope you can join us next time to find out more about food fm and our content go to foodfmradio.com